Hey there, and welcome to Football with Grant Wall. This is not normally the voice who says that line, but I am Chris Whittingham, in for Grant Wall. Well, not in for Grant Wall. Grant Wall is on vacation. You'll hear from him later on in this podcast as he will interview Pablo Maurer of The Athletic about his many tremendous features about American soccer. That's coming up later on in the podcast. But I, who normally co-host this podcast, will take over the steering wheel and will be joined by Tom Bogert of MLSsoccer.com, among other outlets where he writes about American soccer, the American Fabrizio Romano, although I'm sure he wants to usurp Fabrizio Romano to not be considered like someone. So Tom Bogert joins us. Tom Thanks for filling in for me, for filling in for Grant. <laughs> I appreciate it. What do you think? Thank you for having me. It's, it's nice to to be on the Grant Wall podcast for the first time, and, and Grant's not here. I imagine that that this is you know like a backdoor way that that he didn't know who you were gonna get, and like he's gonna be listening to this <laughs> on a beach in Greece somewhere, being like, "Oh Jesus Christ! Like how did this happen? I I take off for one podcast, Woody." <laughs> yeah, I, I believe uh, a longer form interview with Tom Boger is coming. I'm sure uh, we'll get into your life story with Grant Wall soon enough. I want to cover a couple things here uh, in the intro before we get to Pablo Maurer. I want to cover the U.S. men's national team. They played their first game in the CONCACAF Nations League, a 5-0 win over Grenada on Friday before they take on El Salvador away from home on Tuesday night and get into the major talking points. And no doubt the big story from this one was the play of Jesus Ferreira. It's been the talk really of this entire uh, June national team camp. Him as the number nine him in battle with the many other U.S. strikers that haven't done enough. Oddly enough, in the first 40 minutes of the game, that conversation continued up until the point that he scored his first goal. It's like, oh, maybe he'll get a measure of confidence. And then he went and scored four. Where do you stand, Tom Bogert, on the Ferreira for number nine, on the overall number nine battle? I stand where I did before this game. Look, no disrespect to Granada. No, no, Granada, no disrespect to, I guess, the Nations. Well, you know, I can't say that. Disrespect to the Nations League. Yeah, I think it's glorified friendlies. I don't think that the United States, I don't think Mexico and Canada, I don't think that they get anything out of these. Like, the, the first Nations League tournament, whatever, last year, or however long ago it was, like, that was cool. That was a competitive game against Mexico, but... We just play, they just played, what, 14 World Cup qualifiers against CONCACAF teams, and now they're playing Granada and El Salvador and the Nations League, and then we'll probably play Mexico, Costa Rica, whoever, like, they're the same games over and over again, and there's no, there's not enough stakes to this, so it's a long-winded way of saying that, like, yeah, like, it's never a bad thing to score four goals, and it's great that he did, because he would have gotten slammed if he didn't score, or even, as you said, maybe if he scored one, it would have been like, oh, that's nice for his confidence, but it really wasn't good enough, or, or however we want to phrase it. So I don't know. It, it's it's something that, you know, I, I take the mind of Kevin De Bruyne saying, I'm not looking forward to this. These are glorified friendly. So I don't I don't want to read too much into it either way. The the things that I would read into is the fact that Ferrer started again for the third game. That that was my biggest surprise and my biggest takeaway. And again, this, this just has nothing to do with the game itself. It just has to do with, I figured Haji Wright might play. Um, and then as you said, I think it was nice that Ferrari did score, and scoring four goals was very good, but like, look back at the highlights. I, I don't know, you know, finishing patterns, movements, like, that, those are replicable, but, like, how many times are you going to get that many chances against, you know, a World Cup qualifying level opponent? Not really. Yeah, that pullback from the set piece probably won't oh be God. happening, well, probably won't be happening against England, but I will say he takes his goal very well there, and I think it's good overall from a confidence standpoint. I just don't think that for an angsty U.S. men's national team fan base who now has questions really up the spine of the entire team. 
uh, when you think about the goalkeeping situation with, you know, heading into a European club season where the number one and the number two option appear to be heading in as backups to their big Premier League clubs. Uh, the center back situation continues to be discussed. We got to look at Cameron Carter Rickers from the start in this one. Again, you're probably not a lot of data you're taking from that one. We'll get to the Tyler Adams comments from Greg Berhalter in a moment. And then the striker position, that's kind of oddly everything around that is pretty well settled but up the spine of the team there are a lot of questions for me I like Ferreira and what he brings to the table I think if you just assess his performances for the national team he's brought more than any other striker has probably by a considerable margin as well so unless you're talking about bringing in false nines which I just don't think that Greg Berhalter wants to do that and I also don't think that's a very good idea I think whenever these guys have played as false nines it generally hasn't worked so if you're going to have the uh, have a player out there in that position, I think Ferreira is the best option. And I think that's even if he isn't scoring goals, it's helpful if he is. He's certainly scoring goals in MLS, and hopefully he gets the World Cup in decent form. The other player, in terms of bringing through players that are performing well in this national team camp, Luca De La Torre is certainly someone who really impressed in this game against Granada. And while you can say, as you said, lads, it's Granada, I do think that not everyone in a U.S. shirt went out there and was dominant and was tremendous and looked like they had this great bossing ability. But Luca De La Torre bossed this game from the first minute. Carrying, like the progressive carries for me is not something that I really associate with him. Uh, it's been, he actually said uh, to Jeff Carlisle of ESPN that he wants to find a move away from Heracles in the Dutch era Divisi. But this is a player who was always kind of, the bell of the ball for U.S. men's national team deep Twitter, not even just regular Twitter, like the guys who are watching lower-level Eredivisie matches. But I can kind of see why they've been hyping this guy. He brings everything you want out of a central midfield player. Yeah, first of all, you just saying his club team name flawlessly with, with and the, the great pronunciation of, of the league rather than just calling it the Dutch league or some somebody less <laughs> less aficionado, as myself would say. That was very impressive. I, I was happy to be along for that ride. But yeah, Luca Della Torre, um, I've been very impressed by him. Look, like I think that when you look at the club situation, the league situation, my questions were, you know, how do, how do we know if he's, you know, truly that good? Like, and it's not even a disrespect because he had to get out from Fulham and he, he wasn't getting uh, playing time then, so he kind of fell off the radar for a lot of people. But what he was doing in the Netherlands has been what he's done at the National League, uh, the National League, the National Team, but with better players around him. There are some of these players who, they, they, they the better quality around them, the better they get. And I think that his qualities lend to that very well. So, you know, Ben Bender is another guy that I think about, like, he's not somebody that's anywhere near the national team right now, but he's somebody that I project that if he keeps playing with better players, he's going to look better. He's not one of those, you know, Ferreira scored four goals and he, he plays well with a lot of other players, but like Luca Della Torre playing against Granada might not, you know, be the best representation of his skills. And he still did so well. Like, I think that he's somebody that I didn't think that Yunus Musa had somebody that could be replaced and, and, Luca Della Torre is that like he's somebody that the two of them can play together they have similar qualities like you said the the, the ball progression the, the press resistance it's all so good and it's so good to have that dynamic part of the midfield that I think that this group had been lacking before Musa came in before Della Torre really got a chance because this time last year he wasn't really on the radar he almost went to the gold cup but opted uh, opted not to to kind of sort his, his club situation and get ready for the regular for the european season and then he would people were, were hoping that he was going to get called in and so it's really it hasn't been that long he's been in the group and he's been very very impressive yeah and it's been tough to crack it when you consider that three-man midfield of uh, mckenny musa and adams yeah brendan aronson who's played in that midfield area he always seemed like someone who was never really going to have his chance and yet 
played it, it was kind of stunning to me how much I took stock in a Grenada game as I was watching the minutes go by of him just play with personality as you mentioned that press resistance being able to receive the ball under pressure not really freak out play out, have that technical ability to play not just sideways passes, but forward passes as well that were risky and were meant to create chances. There was just so much to love about a midfield performance from Luca Della Torre, and I think he's someone that now, you know, is, again, ridiculous to say off of one performance against Granada. You were just thinking nature. about the content. That, that's why. You, you, you knew no. that you needed the content after this. You couldn't wait. <laughs> no, I, I, I just watched and I go, that's someone who can play at the World Cup. And I know that's I know that's ridiculous to say off that one game. He played pretty well in the game in Minnesota against El Salvador as well. Um, but I, I think he's someone who provides a real different option in that midfield, and it's given Greg Berhalter a real decision to make about. I think I, I think I got to take this guy, especially when this was meant to be the national team camp where Georgi Mihailovic made that case, and it ended up being the the camp where Luca De La Torre made that case. One other thing I want to get to national team related before we get to Tom's area of expertise in the realm of MLS transfers is what uh, Greg Berhalter had to say to the commentary team for ESPN on the night of John Champion and Taylor Twelman about the performance of Tyler Adams. And this was transcribed by Matt Doyle, uh, your colleague at MLSsoccer.com. Uh, he, so this is what John Champion had to say. He said, when we asked Greg Berhalter about the change in the shape, he talked about Adams, and in some sense, he was saying there are occasions in the single pivot role where Tyler Adams hadn't got the job done he hadn't done what Greg Berhalter requires of the man in that position, and that's why he slightly tinkered with the shape of the midfield. In these three games in this June national team camp, we've seen them kind of play out of 4-2-3-1 more than we've seen them previously, and it's really just one of those midfield three coming back and helping Adams in the buildup or helping whoever the holding midfield player is in the buildup. What do you make of that as criticism of Tyler Adams? Because it seems harsh to me. Like, I think... I don't really think of a lot of teams as playing with a single pivot really anywhere in the world. And I, I think it's pretty harsh to say Tyler Adams doesn't have the passing range of Tony Kroos, so he can't play in that role. Like, it just seems like unnecessary criticism and like not taking a player for who he is. Like, I get that Greg Berhalter wanted someone like Will Trapp to play that role or Jackson Ewell to play that role over the course of his national team tenure. I, I, in my view, it's not accepting somebody for who they are. How do you see it? Yeah, it bothers me quite a bit in that term. You know, looking with the national team, you can't just go buy players. You can't. There, there's, you know, outside of the handful of the best nations in the world, they can they have a different player for any system, for any tactic, for anything they want. You know, as you put it rightly, like you're not really appreciating them. I think that Tyra Adams is elite in what he can do in defensive transition, what he can do in ground covering and ball winning. Who cares if he can't play a 75-yard diagonal pass every single time he has the ball? Like, I think my biggest criticism with Berhalter over the years, and, and, and I think he's done a very good job, and I think he continues to, and I'm, I was very happy to see that the formation was finally tweaked a little bit because just play to your best player's strengths, particularly in the national, international game. It's We don't need to overcomplicate things. Like my That's my biggest criticism of him is the overcomplication sometimes and being an ideologue. Who cares if Tyler Adams doesn't play the same style as insert any like deep-lying playmaker Regista player? You have Tyler Adams. You don't have Sergio Busquets. Play to Tyler Adams in strength. Christian Pulisic annihilated players in, in transition with Dortmund. When he's at his best for Chelsea, he's in transition. Weston McKinney, he covers ground. He's so dynamic. Play to their strengths. Like, I was... The, the biggest takeaway from the friendlies, which, again, I, I put a lot more stock into than I do these, these Nations League game, these games, against Morocco in particular... They really were pressing. And when the system was different, Adams got to press more. I didn't know if that's how they were ever going to play. I thought that 
I'd seen enough games, I'd seen enough reps, and knew enough about Berhalter that, all right, they're going to play the 4-3-3, they're going to try to play with the ball, they're going to, we believe in the system, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this group is best suited to high-pressing, or, or transition, rather. You don't even have to call it high-pressing, because I don't think that they're going to, you know, set up a gegen-pressing against England or whatever. I, I was concerned, and I had kind of lost hope, honestly, and I figured that they weren't going to really ever lean into that, and Tyler Adams is you know, the key reason of why this t- this group would be so well set up to that system. So um, I thought that was pretty unnecessary in terms of criticism. I'm not I'm not really sure what else you want. I think that this is going to fuel the narrative that, that some people say that Tyler Adams can't pass well enough, which I don't think is true either, just because he's not as good as pa- at passing as he is at, you know, defensive transition doesn't mean he's a bad passer. It just means he has different strengths. I don't know. The, the, I saw that quote and I, you know, I was on, <laughs> as I've told you, groggy coming out of a bachelor party. I was like reading that. And I was like, is this real? Did this really like, did he really say this? This doesn't seem like something that's in reality. And, you know, I don't know. I was, I was very confused, a little disappointed, but look, I, I think that Berhalter, I think the coaching staff has to know how lucky they are to have a player like Tyra Adams, how lucky they are to have some of these players in that midfield that, you know, I hope that they just let him play to his strengths and we're not talking about, well, Kellen Acosta might pass a little bit better, so maybe Tyler Adams to get benched. I, I couldn't possibly imagine. Well, I, I will say, in fairness to Greg Berhalter, I do think that his method of dealing with this has been to adjust the system rather than to pick a different player. So I do think that, at the very least, they've come up with some tactical tweaks to maybe allow Yunus Musa to do the bits of carrying the ball forward that maybe Tyler Adams doesn't do well enough. But even when I've watched him, I've not necessarily come away from U.S. games thinking he hasn't been good enough passing the ball, he hasn't been good enough playing out of pressure. He might not be elite at it, but I think he does the job reasonably enough. I completely echo everything that you said there. Want to move now to Major League Soccer and the major goings-on in the world of this league and do want to start with one of the games that was actually played on the field this weekend with Charlotte FC beating the New York Red Bulls by two goals to nil in the first match of the managerial reign of Christian Latanzio, the interim coach of Charlotte FC. But it wasn't really him, nor the game, nor the players that were the story. It was the continued fallout from the sacking of Miguel Angel Ramirez, the coach of Charlotte FC, for only 13 games of their first ever MLS season. Uh, you were on, you were in on that press conference where Christian Fuchs, the club captain, talked about this. What have you made of the fallout in the days and weeks uh, since Miguel Angel Ramirez left and the idea that maybe he wasn't able uh, to connect with the players in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I mean, that was very clear, whether it was not connecting with the players, whether it was not connecting with his bosses, not connecting with, you know, uh, further staff that was around him, kind of from everybody I've talked to. They, I, they for The sources that I was speaking to, they, they were trying pretty hard to, like, look, we don't want to, like, you go back to Zoran Cronetta's press conference where he kept on saying, you know, I don't want to go into details. What, like, what, what does that do? I, I think they were trying pretty hard to not kind of throw Mikel Ramirez under the bus, but in not doing so at first, that just opened up more questions about them. Like, all right, they were playing pretty decently well. They they got a decent amount of points. Um, there was this narrative that they were supposed to be the worst team ever, which again, I didn't I didn't really buy into them as, you know, spoon favorites slash like threatening FC Cincinnati's, you know, disastrous expansion season. But that narrative started and a lot of people at the club had been telling me this since around when he made the we're screwed comments. A lot of people were saying, hey, like we don't, look at this group as that like he's the one that's setting this narrative like he has a he has a PR team that rubbed a lot of the players in the locker room 
in a, in a bad way. Like, why does the head coach have a PR team that comes out to be like you're trying to spin things? And, and I think that that illuminates a little bit more of it seemed like Miguel Ramirez was controlling the narrative a lot and tell talking about, you know, how limited the group was that he had. And I can't imagine if you're a player on that team that you'd love to hear it. Like, and there's two sides of every story. Like, there were a number of players that, that really did love him, that really did appreciate him, and not just, like, the South American guys that he had worked with previously. The You know, I, I, there was a couple young domestic players that really got along with Miguel Ramirez and, and really appreciated his development with them. But then there was others where, like Christian Fuqua was saying, like, we would bring him questions or issues, and he didn't want to talk about it. It, it seemed, seemed much more like, you know, authoritarian rather than a, a collective group, and, and that's not good leadership. So it's... You know, Charlotte, I, I, I will give them credit, I guess, for making a difficult decision, and un, a decision that they knew was going to be unpopular when, when they let go of Ramirez. Uh, but on the other hand, he's not a first-time coach. He, I don't, these are, he got fired for almost similar things when he was in Brazil. This is who he is. This is how he had to have been when he interviewed. So they have to take some culpability for hiring somebody that clearly didn't mesh well, somebody who, you know, was, they were quite, uh, sources were questioning his commitment before their first game. Like it was almost as if they were going to make a coaching change before he played because he was, you know, thinking about stepping down. But look, it was, it's all a big mess. You know, credit to them for making a change, but you know, it's you know they they knocked over the the dresser. They had to pick it up. So I don't know. Um, there's just a lot to go in it, and I think that Latanzio is going to get. If I, this is all speculation for me, rather than inside sourcing, I, I if he does well, I I, I very much assume he's going to get the job. And uh, Charlotte, by winning that game, have now won six of their eight home matches. So at the very least, in their home market, when they get fans out to Bank of America Stadium, they're at least sending them home happy. So uh, a big win over the Red Bulls pushes them over the playoff line as things stand for the moment. So. Uh, let's get into your area of expertise, which is the world of transfers. Let's start with Gabriel Slonina, the goalkeeper for Chicago Fire. Yourself and Fabrizio have been out there tweeting about the all, all the latest goings-on with him currently with Chicago Fire, but being linked with both Chelsea and Real Madrid. What can you tell us about his status? So, yeah, as, as I've been reporting, and, and same thing with Fabrizio, you know, Real Madrid uh, put in an official bid last week. It was rejected very, very quickly from Chicago. I, I don't know what the numbers were, but... They did not reflect a kid who's been compared to Gigi Buffon in terms of teenage goalkeepers over the last two decades. So that was an easy decision. You know, Sonina's camp has been pushing pretty hard. And even on the record, he gave me a quote saying, you know, his dream is Madrid. He would all due respect to other clubs. Um, he wants to go to Real Madrid. He can't say no to Madrid. Um, and I think Madrid took that as, OK, we'll be able to get him for cheaper because he wants to leave. And his contract's up after 2023. So they're not getting to a point where this is dire but like this is the window that they need to uh, agree a deal because the longer you wait the less money you're going to get um chelsea were another team they they came close they they were at least in talks i don't know how close close it was uh before the invasion of ukraine and and their their ownership got you know kind of twisted up they were talking to chicago about a deal for sonina in back then in in january and nothing kind of came to fruition before that they went away and now that they have new ownership everything's good they they have put in another bid i've been told that it is much closer to chicago's valuation than than real madrid and i think that says more about the real madrid bid than it does chelsea's bid because we're talking about there's no agreement so chelsea didn't meet their valuation but it's at you know i've not heard I guess positive things in terms of how Real Madrid valued Gaga Sonina. Um, well, there was a report that Wolverhampton were trying to sign him for what they believed could be like a three million pound, like five million US fee. I couldn't possibly imagine it being that low again for this for everything that he, that this this eighteen year old kid has done. He just turned eighteen last month. So as of right now, um, the latest reporting this is super fluid. So I hate to kind of put a timestamp on it, but as of right now, I was told that that Chelsea are in the pole position because they 
actually have a realistic bid in and we'll see how close that gets but we'll see if kind of this shakes real madrid to making a real bid or if solina just is going to hold on to outright i want to go to madrid and, and i'll wait my contract out that could change things so it's a lot of moving parts but as of right now chelsea chelsea and madrid are, are the top two and with chelsea in first but you'd be surprised if he ends this summer window at the very least not having agreed a transfer to a european club yeah i'd, I'd be very surprised and like again the only thing that i could see is if if you know they decide i we want we want real madrid and that's it and then trying to say that we won't sign a new contract or anything but yeah and and particularly with the chelsea bid I know 100% that there's a loan back. I, I would strongly assume so for Real Madrid, but I don't know that to be a fact. So regardless, I think that he'll be here throughout the, the season, whether or not there's a transfer agreement. Bit of an up and down season for him so far, but Gaga Slonina still being linked with Chelsea and Real. Want to move now to the manager of New York City FC, Ronnie Dyla. Wins an MLS Cup last season, has a chance to defend the title this year, uh, could potentially have been a, a, a team that won a CONCACAF Champions League in the future given how well they're building, but he's linked with a move to a club in Belgium, Standard Liège, who have at, at times been in the Champions League, uh, who have been uh, one of the stronger clubs in Belgium, and potentially an MLS coach on the move. Yeah, so uh, the, the latest reporting, I believe, uh, out of Belgium said that the deal was either closer or, or getting there. Um, I'd kind of heard of this possibility for a couple months that Liège, that the interest was real. Um, you never know, I guess, well, how interest turns to deals or, or what, what the feasibility was. What's in his contract? Because he's under contract at NYCFC, there would have to be some sort of compensation, but I didn't know if there was a you know release clause or whatever it is. Uh, so again, the reporting out of Belgium seems to suggest that there's been an agreement between City Football Group and, and Liège, or, or this, is, this can keep progressing. It makes a lot of sense. Look, Dyla has been a really good coach in MLS, he's he's one of the best in the league, um, it, and it's not it wasn't as simple as oh this this they have the best team and they have all this money or whatever it is like he had that at Celtic he did fine at Celtic um, I, I don't know how kind of fans view him now he, he went to Norway after that he didn't he wasn't getting big opportunities so a move for him to MLS NYCFC has been you know really great and it makes a lot of sense that this time of year this is when Patrick Vieira left NYCFC during the season this is when Jesse Marsh left the Red Bulls during the season because this is the European offseason. Um, and I, I was told that Liège weren't the only team that were calling NYCFC or, you know, was poking around at Ronnie Dyla. So it doesn't surprise me, um, just again, given everything that, that we've heard. I, it, it seems like this might happen. And, and again, it, it'd be another success story for MLS, even though it'd be really, really difficult for NYCFC to get a new coach, get a new, get a new you know, program up and running with, with you know, Taddy Cassianos going too. That, that'd be a real big blow to that club. And what would you imagine if for, from an NYCFC fan point of view, it, would you think that they'd look within City Football Group because they basically they scout? I would presume not just players all over the world, but coaches all over the world. I'm sure they have tons of ideas for who they could bring in. But do you have any insight on who they could maybe go to? Yeah, no, I, I don't have any insight. But I, City, looking inside City Football Group first would be my assumption. You know, like before they hired Dyla, they were in talks to try to sign Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, and he was within the City Football Group. And I'm not saying that this is a name. I believe he's currently managing somewhere. But regardless, the point is, I believe that they're going to be looking within City Football Group before, you know, Christian Latanzio is the Charlotte head coach. He was Patrick Vieira's assistant at NYCFC. He's somebody who would have made sense. So it's he's somebody that, you know, is with Charlotte now. But 
Um, yeah, I, I would. Brian Cush- uh, Cushing, uh, forgetting his first name, said, you know, the, the Houston. Nick Cushing. Nick Cushing. Brian Cushing was a Houston Texans linebacker. Uh, <laughs> Nick Cushing was, was a name that, that people speculated, and that's, I don't I don't know anything on that, but that's something that would make sense just given the profile. Yeah, he was the coach of Men's City Women. It was funny because as you were talking about that, I was like, who's the, the Men's City Women coach who came over? And I looked him up and. Thank God, said, or, or I would have been saying Brian Cushing for, for you know, five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> until yeah. <laughs> then you said his name, and yeah, he was the coach of Men's City Women for eight years and has been an assistant under Ronnie Dyer for the last two seasons so uh could certainly uh be an option there uh you mentioned uh castellanos uh the, the the striker for new york city is that another one where you'd be surprised if the summer window ends and he's not in europe or at a really big club in south america yeah i'd, I'd be shocked and, and i preface that by saying i i you know if we talked in december i was i said that i would be shocked if he was here on february 3rd like nycfc promised him when he re-signed his contract and they turned down a bid from Palmeiras in 2021 stay for the rest of the season we'll give you a little pay raise we'll extend your contract and you're gone in the winter we'll let you go we think that you have so much more to give and it worked out perfectly he won golden boot they won MLS cup storybook that's exactly what they wanted and then they didn't get the bids they thought they were going to get Palmeiras came back in with a 12 million dollar bid they were holding out for 15 or more Um, I don't know what his personal side was if he was kind of hoping for a move to Europe um, so yeah, as of right now, there's nothing, you know, there's been reports from, I guess, lower tier sources in, in England that have linked them with, you know, West Ham and, and Leeds and all these. I know that Leeds had the chance to sign them in January and declined. Um, Burnley were the English team that most seriously considered them in January, uh, but they went without Vegerst. Um, and obviously they've since been relegated, so they wouldn't be an option. He's not a player that would go to the championship, nor would you expect the championship club to be bidding 16 or $17 million for a player, whether they could or not. Um, he's somebody that I'm just really surprised hasn't moved yet. I, you know, It's probably almost biased of watching him every week for three, four years. I think that he's really good. I think that his work rate, the things that he gives you outside of goals, which is obviously most important, but what he gives to a pressing team, to a transition team, all of these things. Like I think that he'd fit in well at so many teams. I think he'd fit in really well at Leeds. Um, again, there's been reports linking them with interest. I'd love to see that happen, but you know, TBD. Uh, but but I I very much expect to move this summer. Yeah, and it's actually fairly remarkable. He's been a consummate professional, even when, as you said, he was promised a move in, in January. He's got seven goals in eleven games so far in MLS this season. All right, uh, Tom, just some quick hitters here. Three names that you would link to moves during the summer window in Major League Soccer currently. Kai Wagner, uh, the Philadelphia Union's German left back. He's been linked with a move away for a while. It, it was a, a really big success story in terms of Philly finding value. I think they got him for like 200000 from the German third tier. And he they'll, they'll sell him probably for somewhere within the ballpark of 6 to 8 to $10 million, something like that. Brentford and Fulham were interested in him in, in, the, uh, in the winter, sorry. Uh, no deal got done. There was, there was some serious talks. I've heard that you know the, the promoted clubs are interested. There's some other, I guess, championship clubs. He's German. There, there's still teams in Germany. Um, he's somebody that, from what I've been told by talking to people, that that's very likely to happen. Um, but again, we'll, we'll see. Brenner, FC Cincinnati's $13 million striker. Um, the relationship between Brenner and the club is not very good right now. He wanted them to accept a bid from Internacional in Brazil. Um, a couple months ago that the club declined because it was a loan and, and they didn't see that the purchase option met their valuation of Brenner. Um, he's kind of another name that I, I would definitely be, be watching. And then I, I'll, I'll give you two because I don't think Griffin Yao is going to resonate very well with, with a lot of listeners. He's a homegrown for DC United. He's got, I think, like 300 minutes this year. Belgian club Westerloo are in talks. Um, I guess we'll kind of see how that develops. He's only got, he has an option year next year. So 
at most he's got a year and a half left on his contract and he's somebody who would make sense and maybe he's not ready for consistent MLS minutes. He's too good for the second tier. Um, so maybe, you know, a newly promoted Belgian club would be the perfect landing spot for him. And then lastly, Dewan Jones, American left back at New England Revolution. I've been a big fan of his for, for a little while. I, I was pleasantly surprised to see even after he signed a new contract with New England, there are serious overtures from clubs in, in Europe. I, you know, I, I kind of assumed maybe that the new contract would have said, okay, that's it. We probably have to pay too much. Or maybe New England would say, hey, that's it. We're not going to sell this guy. We've, we keep on selling everybody from our 2021 Shield winning team. But um, we'll see. We'll see. He definitely has um, a lot of interest. We'll see if that, that interest turns into real offers and if New England are going to stand in his way or not. And then on the flip side, incomings. Uh, are there designated player movements uh, anywhere from within MLS of, of teams going after uh, some some big names, some big money signings. Uh, so not a DP, but the, the Giorgio Chiellini move is done. I don't know, but by the time this goes up, it'll probably have been announced. I, that's you know no. no him, and, him and uh, him and LAFC have already been tweeting at each other. So. Uh, that, okay, so, <laughs> so, it's, it, yeah, so, so that's uh, you know as we all knew it was about to happen. Um, the Columbus Crew are going to be signing a DP center forward. They've been in talks with Mauro Minotas, former Houston Dynamo center forward. He currently plays with Jolos in. Uh, Liga in, in Mexico, but I know that they're talking as well with an English-based forward. I don't know who that is. I don't have any sourcing on that. It seems to me that that's the number one target, and Mauro Minotis is, you know, backup plan is, is probably sounds mean, but it, I, I think that they're trying to fish for this, you know, English-based striker, and if not, you know, they could they could swing a deal for Minotis. That's kind of they're in a holding pattern from, from the last I've been talking, so... Though that that's the one that that something will definitely happen there in terms of a DP center forward for them, um, and then LAFC have a DP spot open, um, and that's always extremely interesting. So I'm very curious to see even what position they 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 kind of allocate that to, let alone who's going to come in. So I think that's a big one to watch. So we'll see uh, Roberto Firmino lacing it up for Columbus <laughs> Crew uh, coming up in this summer. Uh, Tom Bogert. Thanks for joining me on your maiden voyage here in the Football with Grant Wall podcast. We'll get you a full-length, long-form interview as we do here on this podcast. Thanks for doing this, man. Can't wait. Always great to talk to you, buddy. Now here is Grant's interview with Pablo Maurer of The Athletic. Our guest now is one of the best long-form writers in world soccer. Pablo Maurer writes for The Athletic, and if you haven't read his stories, you should. Pablo, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. I want to talk about a couple things in particular here, and one of them is your recent story on Clint Dempsey and the Nike music video, the rap video that he made, which is a terrific story. This is from 2006. Um, people should read it if you're listening and haven't read it, but how did this come together? I mean, so Don't Tread, which is this rap song you're talking about, um... I guess it's something that's always sort of existed in the like ether of American soccer, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, I did a story on the 2002 U.S. men's national team water fountain photo shoot I talk about later, but it's one of those things, right? It's sort of a cultural kind of touchstone. Um, so it's something I've always wanted to write about. I, what I'll say is I just, I, I never got around to it, um, mostly because I, you know, I've tried with Clint a couple times. He's sort of notoriously um, media shy, especially, you know, after his heart procedures and stuff, he pretty much stopped doing media entirely. Um, but, you know, when I was finally able to get him, it was a no brainer. I was obviously going to do it. You know, it's like a perfect kind of story for me, I think, you know, so, so I don't know. Yeah, it turned out well. <laughs> Most definitely. I mean, like, that's the thing, and I don't know if everyone out there realizes how hard it is, even now that Clint Dempsey is doing stuff for CBS, how hard it still is to 
sort of get Clint to to do an interview, and and I can I can respect it. You know, it, it's something that um, I think he likes spending time with his family fishing out in North Carolina, um, and uh, doesn't probably feel incentivized to to put himself out there publicly much at this point. How did you finally get him convinced to do this? Yeah, I mean, I would love to tell you that I, you know, recorded a rap or something and sent it to you, some elaborate thing, but it really was just um, putting through yet another request through, at this time it was CBS uh, Sports PR, and I think shockingly to me and um, their comms person, Clint, immediately said, yeah, man, I'll talk about that, whatever. You know, so I, I got the sense it was something he he kind of enjoyed revisiting. I mean, he did have, there was like a, a precondition set on the interview, which is that I not uh, request that he reprised the rap, which I obviously was never going to do in the first place. And as I say in the piece, it took Clint less than five minutes to just start rapping on his own. Um, you know, but... Yeah, you know, I, I read that, you know, Clint has a couple requests and I started to roll my eyes and then it was pretty much just that. And I was like, okay, I think I got to accommodate not getting on the phone with him and and just saying, you know, hey man, like, can you, uh, can you just do the whole thing real quick? We're going to, I should, by, by the way, I should shout out Matt Pence who who helped also with the uh, the reporting for the story and, and uh, you know, was there for the Dempsey interview as well. But no, he was, he was great, man. He was like really open about it and, you know, I was... I was definitely pleasantly surprised. It's a little bit like Andre's contour, how often he gets asked to do his goal call, like by people in public. And I think he kind of looks at them with a blank look and shakes his head. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> like you're just gonna do that like in a in a the lobby of a Marriott or something like that, you know, like right. But then you are at the Hall of Fame induction. So Dempsey is part of the class that just got inducted. And you post a picture of Dempsey, as you have with Meg Linehan and a few other people, uh, with your your Shelby, um, yeah. what? How did that, that happen? What's <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. So I had a really good conversation with Clint actually at the hall. Um, he read the piece, and his brother Ryan was also there. Ryan was a huge help um, for the piece. I mean, Ryan is sort of I think Clint's like de facto historian slash PR person, you know. Um, so we're all there and Clint was, I think, appreciative that we, you know, that I'd, I'd gone there and sort of efforted to speak to a lot of his old friends and all that sort of stuff. And um, as I was leaving the Hall of Fame, um, the, the car you're talking about, what's well, actually like a car truck. I mean, you can think of like an El Camino, but smaller, right? It's a, it's a 1984 Shelby Dodge Turbo Rampage. Um, it's a mouthful. If you ever write that, it's got to be in all caps. It's the official style guide entry for it. Anyways, I, I left the Hall of Fame and I was, uh, unbeknownst to me, I was next to, when I say Clint, I mean, Clint brought 60 of his family members probably there. Wow. And so they had a, a straight up bus, you know, like a, a charter bus. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I was next to the bus and I get a text from Ryan um, that was a photo of the me in the car, you know, taken from the bus. And he said, man, that thing's crazy. What is that? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, one thing, one thing led to another and... I ended up following them back to their hotel and um, uh, walking up to Clint, who's just like, man, that thing's crazy. What is that? You know, whatever. Um, and then I, I, you know, I did something I've honestly, Grant, never done with a player. I said, hey, man, I got to get a photo of you of my car. And so he, he puts his kid down and hand, he takes my phone to hand it to somebody. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be in the photo. <laughs> it's just going to be you in the car. And he's like, 
you know, we'll shoot. Okay. All right. What do you want me to do? You know, he's like, you want me to do one of these? And he puts up like prayer hands or folds his arm. And I was like, man, just, just do whatever you want. So he threw up the, uh, the deuces, you know, I got that photo. So I don't know why it made sense to do Grant, you know, but it did. It was very American. I yeah. I was it. looking around his family stand there. Lyle, Lyle York's his agent is just standing there looking at me like, what the hell's happening right now? Yeah, so, so whatever. Well, I also want to ask you about the drive that ended up with you having your car there because following this on Twitter was quite a journey quest story um, that you had picked up the famous Landon Donovan water fountain in North Carolina and had put it in the back of your car truck and driven it to the Hall of Fame, which wants it, which is great. They do. Um, that was shocking to me, but I didn't but, ask any questions. <laughs> so. So how did how did that happen that you you were able to get the fountain and then take it to the Hall of Fame? Yeah. So for those of you that don't know, I re- you know I wrote a sort of long story, a, a, a long form on that whole photo shoot. Um, just Google 2002 US MNT photo shoot if you've never seen the photos. And part of it, at the end of the story, involved me going to carry and going to the fountain they used in the photo shoot, this photo of Landon Donovan sort of seductively drinking from a fountain, and I put a plaque on it. Um, the point just being that it sort of was this really unique, you know, U.S. soccer landmark that should be appreciated a little bit more. It was done like tongue-in-cheek, but also kind of seriously. And I did it also so that if the you know, facilities people at Wakeman Soccer Park and carry, if they ever replaced the fountain, they would know oh, there's something interesting about this piece of equipment. So a Twitter user, you know, basically since that piece was written and I I included a Google Earth pin on the fountain, once, twice a month, somebody would tweet at me like, hey, look, I'm at the fountain, blah, blah, blah. Or like the plaque is still here. It became a kind of a running pilgrimage, right? I mean, it became dozens of people doing this. And then finally, last month, somebody tweeted, oh my God, it's gone, you know, with like a photo of a new fountain. So I, I very, in a, in a, in a pretty embarrassing panic, um, called the town of Cary, North Carolina and said, you know, which scrap pile did you take this thing to? I'm going to climb a metal mountain to extract it, you know, but, um, this guy, David, who works there said, don't worry about it. It's on a trailer in our, you know, in our shop and he sends a photo of it. So yeah, long story short, I mean, the, I assumed the the Hall of Fame would want it just in their archives, maybe, which is which are nearby. Um, but very quickly, Dorn, the president of the Hall of Fame, Dorn Buckles, was um, said, "No, you know, we like bring it here. We'll get it working. We'll install it. Fans can drink from it." So I think that's the plan now, man. I mean, so yeah, I definitely threw that I threw that thing in the back of the rampage and drove. I made the twenty seven hundred mile round trip. Um, with the Lana Donovan water fountain strapped into the back of my truck. Um, it's dawning on me. I have no life telling this whole story, but uh, fun fact on the way there, I stopped at most dependable fountains, which is the manufacturer of the fountain itself. Just unannounced. I pulled up and I said, I have something here you might be interested in. <laughs> and the guy, you know, the owner's son, it's sort of like a mom and pop type business, gave me a tour of the, um, of the factory. And then, out behind the factory, there's a soccer field that they had laid sod um, so that their employees on break could just kick the bottle, the the, the ball around, excuse me. And I thought, um, you know, it's a stretch, but I thought, you know, how beautiful it, it's sort of this like 
soccer relic came from this place and and like here soccer is sort of being practiced and it's in its oldest american form just by factory workers on break kicking a ball around um i joke in this epilogue i wrote that i don't know if you'll ever see most dependable fountains sc and the open cup or if they can you know compare to bethlehem steel but um but yeah, it was it was interesting. Yeah, it was quite a journey for sure. That's really cool. It's it's only it's something only you would do, I think, maybe. But it's like, not, it's not not a compliment, Grant. But yes, I understand that. You know, like you could say the same thing to like a serial killer. You know, like oh, it's really interesting. You put the bodies in the basement. That's really creative. You know, so you know what I did once. I don't know if I ever told you, but at uh, I was at the National Stadium in Trinidad, and I think it was after one of the U.S. games there several years ago not the 2017 one because that wasn't played there um i actually picked up some grass clippings from the spot where paul caligari hit the shot heard around the world and, and brought them home and probably violated some customs law by bringing <laughs> agricultural yeah. stuff back into the u.s but i thought it'd be neat if like you actually planted those somewhere somewhere and and saw them pro- saw it proliferate well that's like what they did with the uh i think many people don't know the you know, the natural grass field they used at the Silverdome in the 94 World Cup, they picked it up and they moved it to Belle Isle in Detroit. And it's a soccer field there. There's a plaque and everything. You can go out there and play soccer on the, uh, I guess, the same pitch where Eric Winalda, you know, hit that free kick from. So it was, stuff like that is always really cool to me. And sometimes I, I have to admit, like, I, I see you driving so many miles yeah, um, in pursuit of various it's soccer stupidity. stories. And I, and I worried that you never sleep and that uh, it's it's stressful. Yeah, like I'm gonna end up inadvertently live streaming a you know <laughs> a horrible traffic crash or something like that. Um, no, I sleep enough, you know. Okay. Um, and I've I don't know since since the day I got a car when I was 16 or something, I've always um, it's a it's incredibly sort of stress relieving for me to just go on sort of long drives like those. Um, you know. It, I have an affection for sort of middle of nowhere America, you know? Um, so it's nice to be there. It's nice to do photos. It's nice to clear my mind, you know? So no, I'm, I don't know. As far as, as far as I know, I'm, I'm capable of the long haul. We'll see what happens, I guess. The older I get, the harder it gets, but. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is a story you've been working on that's coming out uh, on The Athletic about a f- member of the U.S. World Cup team from 1934. And it's a wild story. And could you explain a little about it? Yeah, so this is a story that consumed uh, Matt Pence, who's a former writer at The Athletic, um, and I's life for probably two years, honestly. Um, <clears throat> this guy's name is Wee Willie McLean. It's a Scottish immigrant, played on a bunch of dominant club sides in St. Louis and Chicago in the 20s and 30s. He's a part of the 1934 U.S. World Cup squad. And then in 1938, uh, off the top of my head, I think, um, he vanished, uh, was never heard from again, <clears throat> legitimate missing person, you know, declared dead, etc. Um, and Matt and I spent really the next two years on and off kind of unearthing what happened to him, tracking down his remaining family members. You know, he had a daughter who's still alive at 91, who we talked to, um, you know, friends and family of former teammates, records requests, you know hundreds of interviews i mean it was it was uh it was just extremely intense um and we 
I'm, I can't give it away here, but we do have an answer as to what happened to him. Thankfully, you know, um, it's not just a 10,000 word quest that ends up with us, you know, giving up and, you know, eating at a roadside chilies in Iowa and lamenting what we've done with the past two years of our life. So, you know, no, it's, it's easily the, my favorite thing I've ever written. Um, you know, Matt, I'm sure would say the same thing. It was an incredible, enjoyable, uh, rewarding experience to work on it, you know, and, and I think it's, it's also, I think a valuable contribution just to the history of the game in this country. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, to seeing it come out. Well, uh, I want to thank you for doing what you do. Uh, you're my friend, but beyond that, I think you've done some things with the history of American soccer over the last several years that everyone should be thankful for and just can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to seeing more of it from you in the future. And um, this is getting very earnest. Yeah, that's great. Those are the I've uh, since the pandemic, I've learned to be more earnest and accept compliments instead of just, uh, you know, following this up with a joke. So um, I appreciate your friendship. And I appreciate what you just said. It's, it's, it's deeply meaningful to me. And, and you know what, Grant, I'll say something real quick. Um, I started writing about soccer 11 or 12 years ago. And there are a couple writers who really vouched for me. Um, I'm talking about 10 years ago, you know, when Nobody had to you, Ivis Klarsep, um, you know, Strauss was always, you know, sort of hugely helpful to me. And um, I, I really genuinely appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's not always that way in this industry. Um, I make an effort to like to now sort of help guys who are just starting out. But um, you and I both know it can be pretty brutal. You know, so I've always appreciated that. Thanks. That's me oh, being earnest. That's me being earnest. None of us is for the podcast, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm losing my edge, you know. <laughs> oh, shoot. But, um, nah, thanks, man. Uh, really looking forward to the story. This is coming out while I'm on vacation, but um, wanted to make sure that we had podcasts continuing and just having your contribution, talking about it. Much appreciated. Onward. Thank you. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of Football with Grant Wall. Thanks to Pablo Maurer of The Athletic and Tom Bogert of MLSsoccer.com for joining us on this edition of the podcast. Hope Grant is having a nice time on his vacation. We'll be back with another episode on Thursday with another interview of someone from the soccer world. If you want to check out Grant's written work, you can do so at GrantWall.com. See you next time. See you next time.